the the children's church thing. Uh, I was like, I was waiting for that because Bella, she really liked children's church last time. So she's like, you're gonna go to children's church again. I was like, okay, all right, we'll do that. Um, as you're able to, I would invite you to please stand uh, as we're going to read uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter three. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter three. Matthew 3, and we will be starting in verse 13 and following. Matthew 3, 13 and following. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that we can be together and worship you in your house, that we can lift you up and praise you and learn from you from your word. Father, we ask for your blessing on this time, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth, that we may seek you with our hearts and our minds. We may be focused on you. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I'm going to be honest with you, it is truly a joy and an honor to be back with you. Uh, I, I really enjoyed worshiping with you in December, December 10th. Uh, I've had two different people come up to me so far this morning and say, Psalm 50. <laughs> so, okay, well, something stuck. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and on top of that, I, I'd say the fact that you all came <laughs> Came back. <laughs> that's, I guess that's a good sign. <laughs> um, but no. Um, so since last time, last time we we were together, we have celebrated Christmas, the New Year, and then last week we had another significant, significant day. Now, but before we get to that, the significance of last week's day, um, I want to just take a minute to pause on, on Christmas. So the the older I get the more Christmas means to me. The, 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 the beauty and the symbolism, the beauty and just that, that, that Advent, Nativity, uh, narrative time of year, uh, it's just constantly coming at us, right? And, and, and the beauty of what we see in Christmas reminds us continuously of the Savior, right? Reminds us continuously of the Godhead, of the of the of the plan of grace, plan of redemption, and, and the grace that we receive from from the Heavenly Father. Well, so you might be scratching your head and saying, what what kind of symbolism are you talking about? Well, you know, in the tree, right? The tree has it's a triangle, right? And uh, originally was uh, meant to remind Christians of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, the presence we give each other uh, on Christmas, 
originally uh, represented the presence of the Magi, right, as they, they came and presented presents to the king, Matthew 2. And we'll be looking over that again real, real quickly uh, this morning as we study through this third chapter of Matthew. Uh, even more importantly, the, the, the star, right, the star uh, on the top of our trees signifies that star that led those wise men to Bethlehem. And so we see uh, it's nearly impossible to go through Christmas and Advent season and not see symbolism all around, pointing to the wonderment and divine focus of that time of year. Well, going back to that star, it doesn't just end on Christmas Day, right? We know that uh, Matthew 2.11 tells us they came and worshipped Jesus in the house, so they weren't really in a stable when they got there. So the, the star continues. Well, the star continues after Christmas to specifically January 6th, which is the day of Epiphany. Someone said it. Who said it? Who said it? You get a star. You get, you get a star. Congratulations. The day of Epiphany. Yes. And, and Epiphany is one of those words that we hear and we, and we may say, Well, epiphany simply means to shine through, to shine through. It's, and it's the shining through, it's the reminder of Jesus coming for the world. Who worshipped him in the house? Jews or Gentiles? The Magi were Gentiles, were they not? They were from the east, wise men from the east. And so it's a great time shining through reminding us that Jesus is not the Savior for this Jewish people, but for the world, right? And so Epiphany 1, celebrated on January 6th, and focuses on those gifts brought uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the Messiah. Now, I would submit to you that that is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah writes about. Isaiah 60, verses 3 and 6, uh, specifically mention that those will come and they will bring gold and frankincense. And did they not bring gold and frankincense and myrrh to our Messiah, to our Lord? And so it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a, it's a fulfillment of that promise. The Messiah would be for everybody. Well, as long as we're talking about the symbolism uh, that is seen, the symbolism that's seen in Christmas, the symbolism that shines through on the, cro on the, on the star, we might as well mention one other thing, right? The, this, the, the color that's used is, uh, for, for Epiphany is white, and, and that is, stands for the light of our Savior. But Epiphany, and I'm thankful for this, does not just end on January 6th. It's actually two weeks, is it not? January 6th and this week. And this week, it's the baptism of our Lord, seen here in, in Matthew 3 that we just read. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this point. Whoa, Nelly, slow down there, bud. We don't need any symbolism around here. We don't need no stained glass windows. Okay, okay, I'll affirm you on that. That's, that's fine. But I'm going to ask, does anyone here have a cross necklace that you might be wearing? I see them. Does anyone here have maybe some cross earrings? Your beloved gave you? Okay. 
Here's a better one, far easier. Does anyone have one of these, a wedding ring? Yeah. See, symbolism is all around us. It, th we're, we use symbols in our everyday lives, whether we realize it fully or not. They're as integral into our culture uh, as, as our very language. They connect with us and teach us and help us to remember, and we are so thankful for them. So what's all this talk about crosses and stars and trees? What's this all have to do? What's this all have to do with Epiphany? What's this all have to do with today? Well, it has to do with the shining forth truth of God's word. The shining forth truth of what really did happen. Shining truth that Jesus really did come. He really did come for us. And he really was baptized, and we'll see what that signifies. Well, how significant that was as we study through this text. Significant for the whole world. So thankful. So incredibly thankful for him. Okay, so let's dive into it. So if you if we go back to verse 13, we start start off, and uh, we've kind of gotten introduced to John, right, in the first part of chapter 3. We've kind of been given his, the, a description of him. He's wearing... Uh, a leather belt, and he's dressed in camel's hair, which, by the way, they didn't have this nice little thing that we have today called an iPhone, and they didn't have this nice little thing before the iPhone was, co was called Polaroid Pictures, right? And so uh, because they didn't have pictures all over the place, um, they, they had to describe people, right? And so that's how people could be identified through description. Well, who was identified in kings as wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. Don't all say it at once, but you know, right? Elijah, right? And so uh, the, the, the descriptions are given to us in the Bible for a reason. Every, every, everything in the Bible has a, a specific purpose, okay? Every word is important. And so when, when the author of Kings writes that, He's giving us a description of what Elijah or who, what, uh, what he looked like. So it's interesting then in Malachi that, the, that Malachi says that before the Messiah comes, right, Elijah needs to be come as well. Okay? And so Matthew makes no mistake then when he describes how John the Baptist looks because how does the first century reader read that? Well, they know what Elijah looks like, right? So what's their immediate thought when they read the description of John the Baptist? Elijah. Thank you. So we have him on the scene, and he's, and he's baptizing these people. He's baptizing the baptism of repentance of sins in preparation for the Messiah. So then it says, Jesus came down from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Now, this is an interesting thing. Up until this point, everyone coming to be baptized by John is coming from Jerusalem and Judea, the southern portion, right? But where does it say Jesus comes from? Jesus says he comes from Galilee, which is in the north. So here comes a stranger from the boondocks, from way out, way out in no man's land, from the forgotten uh, Netherlands, right? way out there and and he comes down he's not famous like the 
like the scribes and Pharisees. He's not a religious leader like them. He's unknown. And he makes this trek many miles for a very specific reason. We have this narrative. We have this paragraph here specifically because Matthew wants us to see this, this sentence here. He came from Galilee. He wants us to immediately notice that juxtaposition, that juxtaposition of here's all these people coming from Jerusalem and Judea. Here's all these, like where the, the religious hub is, right? They're, they're marching from here. And then he switches gears. And now he's coming from Galilee, way distant. And why? Because it's so significant. Jesus comes for this reason, for baptism. Okay. So John and Jordan will be baptized by him. And now there's a break. We don't have this in Mark or Luke verses 14 and 15 are actually unique to Matthew. And, and, and John says, and John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Well, now this is also a juxtaposition from what we've already read in Matthew 3. What is his response to the religious leaders, to the scribes and Pharisees who come? What's, Jesus, what's John's response to that? You brought a viper. How dare you? You whitewashed tombs. You have no place here. He's condemning them. He, he instead, of, instead of saying, oh, yeah, let me baptize you, he says, no, I don't. You don't deserve to be baptized. Uh, get away from me. He knows that they're wicked and that they have no place with baptism. They have not repented. They have not, they have not uh, had any desire to change their hearts in preparation for the coming Messiah. And now here is a total twist. Instead of him, instead of, so here he goes from condemning to saying, I am not even worthy. You should, you should be baptized me, Lord. But he doesn't say Lord. He realizes Jesus is special. He realizes there's an immediate holiness about this man. Immediate holiness about him. And John tried to prevent him. I need to be baptized by you. Well, we know in John, the Gospel of John, that we would, that we would get the implication from John that he doesn't recognize Jesus right away. And so that's where I'm going with, with that with the statement of um, not fully immediately recognizing him. Yes, we know that these men are cousins, but John's been in the wilderness for years. And Jesus has been in his private life of carpentry. And now as he prepares to start his ministry and he comes and John not immediately recognizing who he is, but recognizing the power that he has. And you are coming to me, he says, but Jesus answered and said to him, now this is interesting, permitted to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now what does he mean by that? Remember, every sentence, every phrase is important, right? Everything connects. So what does he mean to fulfill all righteousness? Pause on that for a second. Ask that question. 
we know that he has to fulfill the law, right? So there's fulfillment of the law being done here. But I think it goes beyond just that. There's fulfillment of, of being obedient. I think it goes beyond that. Fulfillment of the moral principle being completed. But I think it goes beyond that. You know, this, this phrase, uh, <clears throat> permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting, is repeated in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says the same thing. For he, it was fitting for our Lord. And that's in reference to um, what he did for us, his salvation for us. So um, same phrase, same phrase there found in, in Hebrews. So we, so we have to just pause and, 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 and ask that question. What does he mean by fulfilling all righteousness? Jesus did not have to come as a baby, but he did. Then he did not have to be circumcised because he was pure and holy, but he was. Mary did not have to go through 40 days of purification, but she did. They did not have to go to the temple to offer sacrifice for him, but Mary and Joseph did. We know this, Luke chapter 2, very clear. He did that out of 100% humility. He did that out of 100% obedience. He came down from Galilee. He made that long journey, not because he needed to. Again, what was John's baptism for? Repentance? And confession of sin. Was Jesus in need of repentance? Was Jesus in need of confession of sin? No. So we see that when he says to fulfill all righteousness, it encompasses so much more. He is under the law. He submitted himself to the law, but he submitted himself also to the moral to the pure, to the undefiled will of the Father. The will of the Father is for him to be baptized. To be obedient in baptism. Not, no, not, because he's in need of repentance. Not because he's in need of forgiveness of sin, but God tells us, or I'm sorry, Jesus says in Matthew, later on in Matthew, when he says, I'm, I'm going to build my church, right? And he promises he's going to build his church. Now, how is he going to build his church? Is he going to build his church from here? Is that how we think of it when he says, I'm going to build my church? Is that what, is that what comes to mind? Jesus is going to build his church numerically? So that every tribe, every tongue will confess his name? Surely it's got to be more than that, right? It's got to be more than just the tangible, physical. He means, I'm going to build my church, not only numerically, because that is a mathematical 
say impossibility to not build a church without money, right? But you go beyond that. Speak uh, spiritually. Go beyond the physical and go spiritual. How does Christ build his church continuously, even until today? 2,000 years later, how is he building his church? Beyond numerically, spiritually. And how is he doing that? He gives us two ordinances, does he not? He gives us two commands, and we are supposed to obey those. Now, if he institutes one of those at the Last Supper, New Covenant in his blood, and the body that we celebrate, I'm assuming that you guys had communion last week. Am I off on that? Or we, we as, as good Baptists, right, we try and hold that at least once a month. Maybe go beyond that. I don't know. Uh, once a week, that's fine too. That's what the that's what the early church church did. Once a week, every time they came together. But he gives us the two ordinances for a reason to build us continuously spiritually to empower us to enable us. They're benefits for us, and so. If he's going to give us the command of communion, which we should be regularly observing, he gives us also the command of baptism. And so we see the fulfillment of righteousness here is that fulfillment, that obedience. Also notice that is, that is um, in verses 14 and 15 that John says, I, I should be baptized by you. Jesus says, no, but you will be baptized. I, I, you will baptize me. And, and, he, and he does. He gets baptized. And what is seen there is a reminder that Jesus doesn't baptize himself because we can't baptize ourselves. We receive baptism. So he received baptism from John. In other words, Jesus was not doing anything at baptism. He received that baptism. Pointing again to that benefit. Pointing again to that fulfillment of righteousness. Then he allowed him, it says. Then he allowed him. The obedience that we see, it's not up to us. We don't be, get to make that decision. That's the point that I'm, that's the point that I'm thrust going at, at, after here. It's not my decision. I don't get to choose. Have you ever heard someone say, I get to choose whether or not I decide to take communion. Like, Jesus doesn't have a say in it. Jesus commanded me to take communion, but I'm not going to. No, that would be foolishness. The same thing goes for baptism. Why would anybody deny baptism? As if they have a choice in that. As if they have an act in that. So, then he allowed him. Now, then as we continue on, we go down to verse 16. When he had been baptized, so he's been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. We go back now into that beautiful imagery. We go back into that beautiful symbolism, which is just exploding in this passage, which just is becoming so alive to us here. We see the heavens open to him. What happened when Adam sinned? 
Okay, his eyes were opened. Oh, that's true. But what happened spiritually when Adam sinned? The heavens were closed. The banishment from the garden occurred. Get out and do not come back in. Paradise was lost. Heavens were shut. That communion, that, that, that communion was cut off. Sin separated us. And what happens here? It blasts off the page. It explodes off the page for us. It says the heavens were opened. So just as Adam's sin closed it, Jesus here, as he's baptized, as he's brought into and starts his ministry, as he pronounces, I am the Messiah, and he's coming on to give his three years of ministry, as he begins it here, the heavens are open. Heavens are open. Beautiful, beautiful imagery. And Matthew does not make a mistake in writing it that way. The heavens were open to him, and now he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. So this is a physical dove, okay, so the spirit took on the embodiment of a physical dove. I think that's accurate. Um, and so, but the, but the people, let's say the Pharisees and the people with unbelieving hearts, they would have just seen a dove. However, John here realizes, John the Baptist realizes, and we get this from the Gospel of John as well, that there at this time, John realizes who he's now baptized. He understands fully, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. And his eyes are open, and he sees the Spirit, and he and it's, a, it's a clear understanding. So he understands that the dove is not just a dove, not just a, you know, not just a bird, but definitely the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Like a dove, and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, so within this one paragraph, within this one little uh, four verses here, four or five verses, we see two things which are unique only unto Matthew. First thing that we saw was verses uh, 13, uh, uh, 14 and 15, that dialogue between them. No, no, I don't want to. No, you need to. And then here in, in, in verse 17, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And uh, the other synoptics uh, take out that last clause. Also, um, Luke goes with, this is my chosen, not beloved, but my. Now, Matthew, he's writing, obviously, to the Jewish people. And he, so he is emphasizing multiple things with this, he, with, with this phrase. Uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am in whom I am well pleased, reminds us, does it not, of Isaiah 60. I'd like to reference Isaiah 60 again. Or 62, I'm sorry. Isaiah 62. Let's see. 
Um, and so in Isaiah 62, Isaiah writes of uh, Isaiah writes of the coming of the promise of the salvation of the of the of the of the Messiah. 60, uh, 62 verses one through four, I would say, would be a reference here, um, in part, in part, to Matthew. So. Uh, Specifically, verse 1, for Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as the lamp that burns. Down in verse 4, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land uh, Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. So here, if we go back to Matthew 3, in my beloved, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. There is, there is peace in, in this land, I am pleased. The beautiful land, back in Isaiah, right? How is that, how, how are we pleased with, how is God pleased with us? How do we have connection with him? How do we have peace with him? But through his son, the son of promise that he sends. I know that I'm not being entirely clear with that. Um, so my apologies if that's not making sense. But uh, so I'll continue on there. And so going back to uh, in whom I am well pleased, references gives us that assurance. Matthew is reassuring his readers here. This is this truly is your Messiah. This is God's son. He is pleased in him. If you receive him, you will, he will be pleased with you. Now, Matthew chapter 1 gives the reader uh, the, the authority of the Messiah through his, his birth, through his lineage. Matthew chapter 2 gives the reader the authority of the Messiah through uh, his early life through the gifts and through the worship. Matthew chapter 3 gives the reader the assurance of the Messiah through what God says, God, God the Father says about him. My beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So, Jesus now has begun his ministry. He has begun his ministry and it started with the receiving of his baptism. And he goes forward and he goes and serves as and lives that perfect life, lives that perfect ministry, goes to the cross, not just for the Jewish people, but for the world. Then at the end of his ministry, as he's on the mountain, he gives a command to his disciples. He gives that second command. We've already looked at the first command. We've already looked over the command of baptism. We are commanded to partake. We are commanded to observe and receive uh, uh, um, communion. I'm sorry. Jesus then speaks in Matthew 28. And he gives a very clear command before he arises and goes back to sit, sit next to the Father. And he says, go therefore into all the world 
Trishiatra, and do what? Baptize. And so that is the second, that is that second ordinance of Christ for his church. Not just the ordinance of communion, but the ordinance of baptism. So we have that clear command because Christ himself did it. Served as an example for us, perfect obedience, perfect humility, even though he didn't need to. He did that setting the example, paving the way for us, showing us how to be obedient to God the Father as well. A couple takeaways here. Okay. How are we viewing which we're in control of? Do we see then in our Christian life So then we have this pretentious idea, if I'm in control, I'm in control of then the next steps. No. No. Jesus showed full obedience even when he didn't need to. Full obedience because it was commanded. That's not an act of which I'm in control of. So growth in Christ, submission to him, is not something that I just do. Coming to church and worshiping him is not something that I get to choose how that looks like. He, he tells us what that looks like. He says, be baptized. He says, have communion. He says, worship me in spirit and in truth. He says, Paul says, read the word. He says, come and, and sing together songs and hymns and spiritual songs and prayer. It's a submission. Are we viewing ourselves as the driver? Or are we seeing this the way God wants us to see it? Submission to him by grace. Just obedience because of grace. Growth from grace. Not from me, but from him. One final thought. So 
uh, this is just a just a side note, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all seen uh, in verses 16 and 17. So when the dove comes down, he's seen the voice from heaven. That's seen. Jesus, obviously, he's the one coming up from baptism. He's seen. This is uh, direct and a great text to use against the ancient heresy of modalism, that God is somehow seen in one uh, God the Father in the Old Testament, God the Son in the New Testament, God the Spirit now, God's different forms, you know. But this is great text to prove against modalism and the thoughts along those lines, okay, and the other heresies that pop up from modalism. So there are many churches uh, and many, many famous preachers out there in America today um, uh, who are modalistic. And so that should, that should challenge our hearts and our minds to say, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to be more on guard against those, against those uh, errant teachings. Um, so let us, with pure hearts, come before him, wanting him to grow us, wanting him to give us the grace that we don't deserve. We don't deserve. But we are so in such desperate need in order to grow in him. And again, not just for the Jewish people, that light shining forth, that light shining through last week, and then this week, that light shining through, through baptism for the whole world, for all of us Gentiles too. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful message it brings to our hearts. Father, we ask that you would grow us, that you would give us grace. Be so merciful to us. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.